welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Hey, just dropping in to say we're now on Patreon. If you want to support the project, head on over to patreon.com slash legallistening, where you can unlock some fun bonus content with me, Zach, and some special guests. Thanks so much for all your support. So today on the podcast, we have Warnica and Gehring, a 2004 Ontario Superior Court of Justice case. And I think, am I fair to say this? Is this the first family law case? This will be the first family law case we have up. I will make sure this one gets put up before the other ones that we're also doing today. (laughs) This is, everyone, you've all been asking for it. This is the inaugural legal listening family law case. And it is brought to you by my law school best friend, Claire. Claire and I... Claire and I were introduced via a mutual friend. We're both from Windsor about two weeks, three weeks before law school began. And we have been best, best law friends ever since. So I know Claire in particular was very hoping that we could do a family law case. And I was like, who better other than you, Claire, who loves family law? And um, that's I I could I could go on. I could go on. Yeah, I I mean, we limit myself. I was going to say, we could literally do like a 10-part series about how uh, Claire is so great. So uh, we won't for her sake, but uh, <laughs> we're certainly thankful she offered to record this for us. We have a, a, some more of her decisions coming as well that are also family law decisions. Mine and Zach's knowledge of family law is very limited, so we always appreciate everyone coming on the pod and suggesting and reading these types of cases for us because I, I honestly wouldn't know where to start with this stuff. So yeah, Claire does her own intro of the case, which is absolutely excellent. So we'll leave it to Claire. This area of law has always been something that's been a particular interest to me because I love pets and I love family law. I have to say that I think this is an issue that courts are going to have to eventually deal with sooner rather than later, uh, because as our society continues in 2021, Uh, Pets have gained more importance to a lot of people uh, as opposed to less than they did in 2004. I'm not sure how the courts are going to be able to balance, you know, the issue of court resources and backlog with what I'm sure is going to be only an increasing amount and has been an increasing amount of cases regarding pet custody or issues with what to do with a pet when a relationship ends. But it's definitely something that I think is overlooked given the legal status of pets as property that continues to exist throughout Canada. Uh, I hope to be able to explore more of pet cases and different takes and uh, interesting things that courts have brought up um, throughout the years since this case was decided in 2004. But as it currently stands right now, um, pets are still regarded as property. And this is basically the view throughout Canada, especially in Ontario. And this case also, too, has a little excerpt of kind of a very... Um, heteronormative and kind of just frankly weird passage about the meaning of what it means to cohabit with a person or be in a romantic relationship with a person, uh, which I don't love. But again, it was in 2004. 
Um, so a little bits and pieces of this case are a bit outdated. Um, however, I think it's a good jumping off point for anybody who is interested in, you know, the area of pets and family law. So thank you for listening. Warnica and Gehring, heard November 19, 2004, before Justice Roger Timms in the Ontario Superior Court of Justice. Released December 17, 2004. Reasons for Judgment On June 25, 2004, the applicant issued an application using Form 8A under the Family Law Rules. His sole claim was for shared joint custody of a pet dog named Tuxedo. The application alleged that the parties had dated during the period June 1993 to in or about February 2004. He further claimed that the respondent had purchased the dog in question as a gift for him in 1996. The respondent issued an answer slash claim on July 16, 2004. She did not deny dating the applicant as set out by him. She denied any cohabitation and she denied that the dog was a gift to the applicant. According to her, it was purchased as a companion for herself as she lived alone. In her claim, she too sought an order for custody of the dog. Due to the unusual nature of the claim, the matter was put before a judge of the court prior to the scheduled first appearance in Rule 39 court. That judge endorsed that the applicant was required to justify to the respondent and to the court that there was authority and jurisdiction to have this matter determined in the family court. In response, counsel for the applicant sent the letter arguing in favor of this court having jurisdiction along with copies of various cases. The respondent sent her own letter. On August 27, 2004, the applicant brought a 14B motion seeking leave to amend his application. He wished to include a claim for a declaration that the respondent holds the possession or ownership of the dog on a constructive trust basis for both of them in equal shares, and a direction that the applicant should have temporary possession of the dog for alternating one-week periods. On September 3, 2004, Justice Scott granted permission to amend the application as requested. In her brief endorsement, she also said that the family court would accept jurisdiction on the basis that the Superior Court has jurisdiction to grant declaratory orders and that the parties had an intimate relationship that might be determined to be one of cohabitation or spousal. Obviously, Justice Scott was referencing Section 3 of the Appendix to Subsection 21.81 of the Courts of Justice Act, which establishes the jurisdiction for the family court. Included in the schedule of proceedings that must be brought in the family court are those for relief by way of constructive or resulting trust or a monetary award as compensation for unjust enrichment between persons of the opposite sex or of the same sex who have cohabited. The applicant did not on page 5 of his original application say that the parties had cohabited. He only said that they had dated. In his 14B motion, the applicant did not say that he would be relying upon a finding that he and the respondent had cohabited, although perhaps by implication he was doing so. Otherwise, it is difficult to understand why an amendment would be permitted. When the application was amended, the custody claim was abandoned and one small but important change was made on page 5. 
The applicant now alleged that he and the respondent had cohabited as well as dated. On November 19, 2004, the parties appeared in front of me for a case conference. I spent some time endeavoring to resolve the case. However, I did not express an opinion on ownership. I endorsed as follows. I am concerned about the jurisdiction in this matter. Assuming that there is jurisdiction, I nonetheless have to wonder whether this matter should be allowed to proceed. For those reasons, I am going to consider myself seized with the file. I have today advised both sides of my above concerns and that these concerns could possibly lead to a dismissal of the action. Each party is to have two weeks to make written submissions on that. I decline to set any future events until I have received those submissions and determine what should occur thereafter. I have now these submissions. The respondents arrived first on December 1, 2004, the applicants on December 3, 2004. For her part, the respondent asserts that the parties never lived together. In addition, she seeks security for costs pursuant to Sub-Rule 2413 and a dismissal of the action pursuant to Sub-Paragraph 1612C, Roman numeral 4. Counsel for the applicant takes the position that as Justice Scott has already ruled on the matter of jurisdiction in her endorsement of September 3, 2004, it is res judicata. In addition, he asserts that pets, pursuant to the jurisprudence, are considered property and therefore subject to orders with respect to possession or ownership. He attached a number of cases dealing with the meaning of cohabit under the Family Law Act. Perhaps recognizing problems with that, counsel wants the issue of whether this couple cohabited determined at trial and not at a preliminary stage. Counsel for the applicant did not address the fact that he only pleaded that the parties cohabited in his amended application and not in the original one. I suspect strongly that the applicant now alleges an undefined cohabitation in order to avoid the jurisdiction problem. If the parties only dated, which might well have included some overnights at one another's home with all that entails, it is quite unlikely that they would meet the test of cohabitation. In the FLA of Ontario, cohabit is defined as living together in a conjugal relationship within or outside marriage. In Warwick and Ministry of Community and Social Services, Justice Blair, as he then was, quoted with approval the following statement of Chief Justice Lord Goodard in Thomas and Thomas. Cohabitation does not necessarily depend upon whether there is sexual intercourse between husband and wife. Cohabitation means living together as husband and wife, and, as I endeavored to point out in Evans and Evans, cohabitation consists in the husband acting as a husband towards the wife and the wife acting as a wife towards the husband, the wife rendering housewifely duties to the husband and the husband cherishing and supporting his wife as a husband should. In Molodowicz and Pentanen, Justice Carisco set out a rather lengthy shopping list of factors which I do not propose to repeat here. Suffice it to say that mere dating, no matter how long, is not likely to meet a sufficient number of those factors. The applicant cannot avail himself of Part 1 of the FLA. See Walsh and Bonna, where the Supreme Court of Canada held that the property equalization provision of the Nova Scotia Family Law Act was constitutional and that a decision not to marry should be respected as it stems from a conscious choice of the parties. Therefore, by remaining unmarried, 
the parties are making a decision to not accept the mutual rights and obligations of marriage. It is accepted that this decision settled the issue as regards the similar provision of the Ontario Family Law Act. Assuming a lack of jurisdiction in the family court, I could either dismiss the application or direct that it be transferred to the general superior court. In either event, the applicant could proceed there with a claim to have a declared interest in the dog, pursuant to the doctrines of constructive or resulting trust. If a dog is property, then in that sense, it is no different than any other property. For example, a ring or a painting. Of course, any pet is somewhat different in that it does not readily lend itself to physical division. A pet could be sold with the proceeds to be divided in accordance with any determination as to the party's respective interest therein. However, that is something that few would want. Certainly, it is something that no one wants here. A pet could be shared, as happened in the case of Rogers and Rogers. In my view, that would be akin to a custody or access order. Whether in the family court or otherwise, I do not believe that any court should be in the business of making custody orders for pets, disguised or otherwise. To the extent that any of my colleagues may feel otherwise, I respectfully disagree. Obviously, I acknowledge that pets are of great importance to human beings. Strong bonds develop between them and the human beings that look after them. To some people, the relationship with their pets takes on a significance exceeding that of any other. They go to extraordinary lengths to preserve that relationship, even at a cost that some would say is disproportionate. Some may consider them to be children. However, they are not children. However any case is determined, it should not occupy more court resources than it merits. Ideally, it should not eat up more of the party's resources than is warranted. The applicant herein seems to know no reasonable limit. He has already spent what must amount to several thousand dollars. The respondent is concerned about her costs and asking for security. If the applicant were to have his way, there would be a trial with viva voce evidence to determine firstly the issue of cohabitation and then ownership of the dog. Prior to any trial, there would have to be at least one settlement or trial management conference and an appearance in trial scheduling court. In my view, whether the family court does have jurisdiction or whether jurisdiction lies in the general superior court, this case must end here. Initially, I was tempted to use the provision found in subparagraph 1612C Roman numeral 4 of the family rules to dismiss the application. Alternatively, I considered doing the same thing, using Rule 25.11 of the Rules of Civil Procedure, or even using the inherent jurisdiction of the court. However, I have concluded that it is more appropriate to use the similar provisions found in Subrule 2.3 of the Family Rules, and Subrule 1.041 of the Rules of Civil Procedure. The parties deserve a just procedure, one that is fair to both parties one that saves time and expense, and one that is appropriate to the importance and complexity of the case, and one that devotes appropriate court resources. Three judges have now spent time on this file. That is sufficient. Short of a full-blown trial with contradictory oral evidence and findings of fact by a trial judge, nothing more can be added to allow the court to determine ownership. The parties contest whether the dog was bought as a present for the applicant. It would seem that they also contest the amount of time that they spent together prior to the end of their relationship. They do not contest that the dog, a mixed breed, 
was purchased from the local pound in 1996 for $100. They do not contest that the respondent purchased the dog. They do not contest that the dog always lived with the respondent, except for a period of a few months after the parties ceased to have a relationship, when they shared possession back and forth. It would seem odd, if the dog was purchased as a gift for the applicant, that it always lived with the respondent prior to the termination of the party's relationship. Assuming a he-said-she-said situation otherwise, that is the best evidence on the gift allegation and it stands against the applicant. It would appear as if the applicant's involvement with the dog was totally dependent upon his relationship with the respondent. The applicant may have spent money for such things as dog food and the like, and he may have spent time caring for the dog. I do not consider that to be relevant to who owns the dog. I am dismissing the applicant's claim for those reasons. If the respondent feels that she is entitled to costs, she may make written submissions in that regard. Mr. Justice D.R. Roger Timms. Thanks for the listen, friend. I hope you're able to enjoy that case and learn something new from it. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademile. Audio engineering by Anthony Rademile. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com. And music done by Matt Rademile at radandkel.com. At Legal Listening, we're always open to new ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out on Twitter at Legal Listening or online at LegalListening.com. Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We'll catch you in the next case. Bye now.